0: Hi, everybody. Welcome to this week's episode. Got some really exciting guests today. And yes, guests plural. We're speaking with Josh and Armin from Drift. So Josh is the CRO and Armin is the VP of sales. So we're really going to dive in deep. We have a long conversation today about some really amazing things, including why it's so important to, uh, to for your time to lead, which means you're the first contact uh, to a new lead. Uh, we're going to talk about the hiring processes, like what are the best practices and how to how to make that hiring process right. We're going to talk about what is conversational marketing, uh, which is basically how to humanize an automated process, uh, which will help you build that rapport with the client and build that relationship, which is, as we all know, very key. And we're going to talk about different sales cycles. So there's a lot to go over here, and we have some great guests, and this is going to be really a great episode, so make sure to stay tuned. And while we're here, if you're an early-stage startup and you're looking to get your first sales uh, or start to build out a, a process and define the process so that it could be a repeatable one and hire a team to start implementing and working on that process, feel free to reach out to us at startupsales.io, that's startupsales.io. Uh, and this is what we do is we help early-stage companies build this infrastructure and get your first sales. Let's get to today's episode with Josh and Armin Hey, everybody. Before we get started in this episode, I know that you're eager to get going, but I wanted to ask for your help. We want to get the word out there more that uh, this podcast exists. So if you're finding value in this and you really are enjoying this, would you mind please sharing this with your colleagues or putting it on social media as much as you can so that we get the word out there and we could continue to deliver more and more content like this. Really appreciate your help and uh, thank you very much. Hey, Josh and Armin, how are you guys? Hey, good good to hear from you. How's it going? Terrific. Doing, doing well, Adam. Lovely. I'm glad you guys could join us. So for those of you listening, we have Josh and Armin here from uh, from Drift. Can you guys give a little bit of background about who you are and uh, what your background is? Sure.
1: Sure. You want me to go first? All right. start. Okay. I'm Armin Zilchin. I've been in uh, tech sales for 23 years now with... Mostly uh, security companies, Drift is the first marketing automation company I've ever worked for, and largely been focused on uh, sales, account management, done some international work. In addition, mostly been in really early stage. So most of my companies have been in the first teens to 20s uh, employee in the company uh, with very low revenue, usually under $5 million when I started.
0: Makes it, uh, you, you picked a good good market, the hardest market to work in, <laughs> the early stage startup sales. And you might as well try
2: for the, uh, the brass ring. That's where most of the shares come from. So <laughs> Exactly. Uh, my background, Armin and I actually worked together at Sophos way back in the day is where we first met one another. Uh, and then after that, went to log me in around the same time, very early stage. They had just come off their uh, $3 million a year in revenue, so we, we got their early Days to help build it out. And after 10 years at, at Log Me In, doing a number of different roles and responsibilities from sales leadership to services and support leadership, uh, international leadership, uh, went to Car Gurus for about two and a half years, where we had a massive explosion of growth. Uh, we're able to take a sales team from about 70 people and 120 million in revenue to 300 people and on a run rate of over 400 million in revenue. So really, really grew fast and came over to Drift about eight or nine months ago to reunite with, with Armin and the team and a number of other LogMeIn team members who came over here because we realized we were, we were building something pretty special and, uh, and wanted to do, do it all over again. Wow, it's
0: uh quite the background that both of you guys have. I think uh, there's a lot to listen to and a lot to learn from there. So let's start with this question. So since you guys have such a background, what are some of the things that you've seen these different companies do that hurts them and slows them down with their initial sales?
1: Yeah, I think there's a there's a lot of things, and you know, I don't mean to to talk a little bit about drift, but I think a lot of it has to do with how things are routed to the sales team to begin with i think throughout the la- i started my sales career following up on mailings before most companies uh started putting their companies digitally on the on the internet so 1996 and as this automation over automation i would say of sales and marketing has happened over the last 15 20 years what's happened is we've forgotten our our sort of the basics which is people that come to your site want to talk to you right now. And I think right now, I, I was just talking to a company and it takes them two and a half days after somebody fills out a form to get the lead routed to the right rep. Wow, that's and if awful. You, and if you think <laughs> about that, like most people, and I, and I talked to a lot of companies about this, and we know that speed to that first engagement is what really can contribute to uh, capitalizing on that high intent and the problem is that we haven't architected our systems to help businesses um, operate that way. And so I think the biggest thing is over-architecting both the, the automation and, and routing and, uh, and territories in a way that is very company-centric. We have to do that as we scale, but I think keeping the customer in mind is something we ultimately often lose.
0: Absolutely. I think one of the things that I talk to companies the most about is if you have a chat app on your uh, site to make sure that you respond right away. Uh, you know, it, it, what's the point of having it there if you don't respond till the next day? Because their expectation is somebody's going to be there. And it's, it's a little different than what you were saying about routing, but it kind of is the same because that time to first contact is so important.
2: Yeah, it is, and there's there's enough data and evidence out there that shows the companies who respond and engage with their potential buyers fastest are going to convert at a higher level, and their trajectories are different from a from a bookings and revenue standpoint because when somebody is on your site, they're at their highest intent in that moment. And if you have an opportunity to engage, uh, you give them a different buying experience than they're used to. Absolutely.
1: I think the other thing that slows the process down is we all use BDRs these days. And oftentimes we're not optimized to take the, like, the hot lead and get it right to the hands of a sales rep. They're always um, booking a meeting for later. And, it's, and I just read a tweet. It was somebody that had, had engaged with Gong.io and they said, hey, this is great. I had a great conversation. The rep was great. I hope that that wasn't a BDR and they're going to pass me off to somebody else on the next call where I have to start all over again. Yeah, And I thought that was just really interesting because we all do it that way, but we, again, sort of forget about what that's like being a customer through that process.
0: Absolutely. I think it's awful you have to explain yourself twice or sometimes even more cuz they'll forget. Uh it's, it's or, or the BDR experience.
1: doesn't take great notes, the handoff isn't that great. There's all kinds of things that can go wrong that just make it a poor experience.
0: Yeah. Definitely. But the problem is is how can you scale something like that so that you you get the benefits of having the SDR or BDR without
2: losing that uh that momentum? Yeah. It's a good question. I think for us, I mean, we, we've attacked it with technology, uh, we've attacked it with with building out playbooks here at Drift for our bots. So you know, based on what we expect a human to do when they're on somebody's page, whether it's our page or a customer's page, you can anticipate what questions they're going to ask, what their next steps are going to be, what they want for information, and can sort of build out. It's like a remember when you were a kid and you read through those choose-your-own-adventure books? You'd get to a chapter and then figure out which direction you want to go. We've, we've sort of built out our, our chat functionality the same way and allow people to choose which direction they want to go and what types of answers they want to get so so that way when we are engaging uh with a human with an sdr when they come into the chat you've qualified and understood down to a level that you can pick it you can grab the baton from where the bot left off and start to engage with the customer versus having to re-qualify and re-ask the same questions all over again
0: yeah but what happens if somebody's – they're on the website and they're saying, okay, I want a demo. Can an AE jump in right then and there and say, hey, yes, let, let's do it? Absolutely. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And that's – I think the – yeah, I think we've taught ourselves that it's okay. The highest intent is when someone goes through the pain of filling out a form. And it's not true. that What's true is – The highest intent is when someone stopped their day to be on your site to investigate what what the benefit might be. And if we don't capitalize on that right then and there, it already starts to degrade um, the intent level. And the longer you wait for them to do something to score high enough in your marketing automation, be nurtured, all that other stuff that we do, the more uh, that intent erodes – by the time you get to them. And that's why time to speed to lead is so important is because that erodes really quickly. They either lose interest, there's another priority that comes up, or uh, they start talking to you in a competition. The other thing I think that slows down the sales process for as long as I've been a salesperson and I've done it myself is they don't really capitalize on the urgency and dig and ask hard questions. And they believe some of the lies potentially that customers tell them or customers (laughs) evade questions. And the reps believe those things without inspecting them. And eventually, uh, you're chasing a deal without full appreciation of what might need to get done because you haven't asked the tough questions.
0: Yeah, I think that's a really important thing that you just said is especially the inexperienced reps. We'll ask a question like, Oh, are you working with competition? Oh, how much are, are you paying them? Like, that's an important question to ask that so many people are afraid to ask when it could be really beneficial for you, not because it's Intel, but because you need to look at your job as a salesperson more of a consultant and that you're here to help them. So don't be afraid to ask these questions.
2: Yeah, it's, it's don't be afraid to, to get a no. Like it's okay yeah. to hear the word no, and so we had talked about like going for the no and asking those types of questions because um, if they don't if if they don't have a pain that you can solve today, um, or if they're not in a place where they have the time and the resources to to spend on solving it, then. You know, all you're doing is is delaying that no until later in the sales cycle, maybe a month from now, six months from now. But they're going to say no. If no is no, they're going to say no. And so you're better off going for the no early on and figuring out whether or not what you offer can actually solve the problem. Absolutely. They have. Yeah. I think about the,
0: go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> I was just going to say because if you don't get the no, they'll sign up and they'll pay, but then you'll have churn.
1: And that's
0: even harder for the company.
1: Right, right. I was just thinking about the problem in terms of the pipeline reviews that I do and where the reps get stuck and why the process gets elongated. The ones that are disciplined to ask the tough questions over and over again and hold themselves accountable for not believing some of the BS that gets talked or they they don't evade those heavy questions. uh, Those are the ones that get sales processes done faster than most.
0: Yeah, definitely.
1: All right. I I have a question, Josh. What is a CRO
0: responsible for for a company? And when do you you think an early stage company should hire a CRO?
2: uh, It's a great question. And CRO is sort of this ambiguous title. That depending on which company you go in and who you talk to can cover different things. Here at Drift, it's really sales focus, uh, so it's focused on our inside sales team, our enterprise sales team, um, and then our alliances and partnerships. So it's really it's closely tied to revenue and what we're doing from a sales standpoint. But it does not include marketing. It does not include customer success, uh, which is is different in in various orgs. So you can go into companies who have a CRO that will cover all of the go-to-market from beginning, so IE marketing, um, through the customer lifecycle and customer success. Um, it, based on the stage we're at at Drift and what we're focused on, I think we've done a good job across our leadership team of trying to compartmentalize focus and what is getting the attention. And then over time, you know, in a company that's growing at our speed, we're a different business every six months. We're a completely different looking business every six months. And if you read the book Powerful by Patty McCord, she ran people and talent for Netflix from very early days when Reed Hastings called her, hired her, brought her in through, like, I think she was there for 14 years. And she talks about, like, at Netflix when they were going through those growth stages, every six months it was a different company. And so you need your leaders, you need the people in the organization to be able to take on different challenges, different responsibilities as the company is growing growing and the needs change. So so CRO is kind of a catch-all title that could include various functions, but here it's very much sales focused.
0: So where do you draw the line between like a VP sales and and CRO?
2: Yeah, I, I think it's allocation of responsibilities. You know, Armin and I have worked together for a long time between Sophos Log Me In and here. And so kind of where we have separated responsibilities, he's, he's really focused on driving the day-to-day with our sales team on pipeline reviews, hiring, progressing salespeople through our program here, and making sure that we're getting to, like, we run a, a tight monthly business. So it's based on day-to-day input metrics and really staying tight to that. Uh, I think my responsibility is to try to figure out right, beyond the day-to-day, if we're looking out a year from now, two years from now, three years from now, what's our strategy as we emerge with international, with new products, with other sales motions that we're going to have here, the strategic alliances we have, the partnerships we have, and to spend the time kind of trying to look out over the horizon so that we can both execute the cadence that we have in the short term, but we're building toward a longer-term vision.
0: Interesting. All right. Is there any ever any conflict between you guys? Or, I mean, you guys work well together. you worked at different companies together, but is there any inherent conflict between a VP sales and a CRO?
1: I think there can be. If Well, I think it's easy for Josh and I because there's already a level of trust and understanding and appreciation for each other's capabilities and talents. And I thought, you know, DC said, hey, we need to bring on a CRO. And I said, great, let's go. And he said, you're not mad? I said, no, we need help now. If we want to (laughs) grow as fast as – I'm I'm underwater – I know at that moment in time, I knew I couldn't get to any of the strategic stuff uh, that we needed to get to, to grow the business. And like Josh said, it was a new business every six months and I was just behind because uh, I was just trying to manage the day to day. And what DC said to me was like, listen, you need to keep that engine going and then we need somebody to come in. So it was really obvious what the problem was that we were trying to solve with the CRO. And so when Josh came on board, he's like, okay, what do you want me to take? And I'm like, you can take this, you can take that and you can take this and I'll, I'll work on this." stuff here. And since then, it's been really just where we've been going. And I'm sure we'll assess over time and that'll change. But I think that trust and appreciation for each other is easier. A lot of companies, when they get a CRO um, and there's no relationship basis there, there's probably a little bit more disruption than we saw here because this relationship was already uh, uh, strong. And so, it, like I said, it'll change. My job probably will get more narrow. You know, we talked to Molly Graham, who worked uh, for Facebook for a bunch of years, and she talks about how, as a business like this grows exponentially in a very short period of time, your job gets smaller because you were doing so much at the beginning when there's 18 people you have to do a lot of different things and as it becomes 400 people you have to do less things but they're still super important most people take that as a diminishing responsibility and they're playing a smaller part which mathematically they are but it's actually growth in your career and i think people
2: don't understand that point of view yeah i I think the one thing i'd add there adam is I'd say Armin and I have worked together long enough that we know we have, like there's no ego, there's no competition. We're not battling it out for one hill or another. I think we respect each other's opinions. We'll debate and disagree on things, um, but we get to the other side of it because we both uh, we're, we're trying to accomplish the same goal here. And it's very much rowing in the same direction. So I think that's important. You need to have that, the, the trust between one another. And even if you have differing opinions, like, you can figure it out pretty quickly.
0: I think that's really important, not just for VP sales versus CRO. It's also for the founders, with the sales team and Absolutely. any teams cross market. You guys have to put the ego aside and remember that everybody's on the same mission to make the company succeed.
1: It's actually one of the biggest killers that I've seen in my career agree, uh, yeah. in all levels, whether it's founder, whether it's individual contributor. If the ego is too strong with someone, it more often than not, I would say most of the time, kills the relationship and they end up parting ways. It's not a good situation. You really when you're pushing this hard and you're putting this much effort into it, it's not about an individual. That will come as A byproduct of the growth. You will, your interests will be fulfilled. When I started at Log Me In, I was a manager level. I had taken a reduction in status. I went from a director down to a manager level when I got there. And I started from scratch. When I left, I was a VP of International overseas, which wasn't even an ambition of mine necessarily, but that happened through trust, growth, contributing to the business. And those opportunities became available to me over time. If I came in and said, I want to be a VP in one year, I probably wouldn't have been there much longer. Right? Yeah. It's all about the mindset. It is.
0: Yep. No empire building. (laughs) (laughs) Armin, I have a question for you. Uh, You know, I'm looking at your LinkedIn and I've seen you worked at Dine. So technical product, you've worked at security products. What are the differences that founders should be aware of between these kind of businesses and the sales process?
1: There's so much. um, The buyer, the persona. Uh, the go-to-market strategy. Is there a trial and an evaluation? Uh, I, the hardest one, and the one that was probably the most outside of my wheelhouse was when I went to GrabCAD, which was a mechanical engineering software uh, platform. And I hadn't done anything with, with a CAD solution before. And um, the language that they used, um, the way the buyers operated. So I would get on a call early days. I always get on calls and just start talking to people to understand what the process is like. And talking to mechanical engineers, I found that they'll talk to you all day long because they want to learn. They want to, nobody really talks to them that much amongst the, yeah. And so I'd be like, oh, this was a great call. We're going to crush this sale. This is amazing. The guy had no power at all to make any decision, even though he knew everything about the company and what the problems were and how we might be able to solve them and all that sort of stuff. So, Ooh, different personas, different markets where marketers, uh, they are uh, always testing new things and they want to keep up to speed and they do have a budget to to make decisions. I think the challenge with them is they've got so much on their plate, they've got to show return quickly. And I think that's the apprehension in that and, and nuance in that market. So I think it's, what does the market look like? What does the competition look like? Who are the buyers? What's your go-to-market strategy? Is it going to be a freemium to paid model? Is it going to be a long evaluation process model. Is it a trial model? There's a lot to consider based on what market and what buyers you're dealing with. So let's start with the,
0: the market and the persona. Is how do you begin the research for that?
1: <laughs> uh, like I said, my uh, de facto sort of operation is to get on the phone yeah. uh, I listen to the marketing team. What what content are we putting out? What information are we putting out? and then understand what the buyers are saying in response to that messaging and understand if there's really a problem there or not. That's where I've made, I think, good decisions on companies is try to understand what problem it's solving and how big is that problem and how and how widespread is that problem. Yeah,
2: and every every founder is coming to market with a concept for what product market fit is and who they think their product solves most for. And then you, you discover these amazing things along the way that whether it's a, a niche market or vertical that you weren't expecting to adopt your product as quickly or a use case that you hadn't anticipated. And I think we've found that here at Drift. There are use cases we didn't necessarily anticipate but they make a lot of sense. And in retrospect, you look back and think, yeah, why didn't we anticipate why somebody would use it that way? So I think, especially for early stage companies where you need to spend wisely, you need to use your time impeccably when you're trying to find product market fit is is get it into market. Like Armin said, have those conversations, talk to as many people as possible, and then go where the market pulls you as, as opposed to trying to fit a square peg in a round hole and force something in just to validate your uh, your initial belief at what product market fit was supposed to be.
1: Yeah, I think that's a challenge with founders because they're so passionate about the problem that they potentially are solving. When feedback comes from the market that it should be a slightly different way, it sometimes is difficult for them to make that switch. And we saw this live at Sophos. Sophos was a very good enterprise grade antivirus software. Around the time, uh, probably 99 or 2000, the Melissa virus came out, which was one of the most pervasive widespread viruses that scared people around like, wow, these things can really do some damage most of the competition in the market said, we want to try to catch this stuff at the email level. So we want to do email scanning. And Sophos's position was, no, no, no matter whether you put that in or not, you still have to have endpoint protection that's really strong. Um, So that, that would be just like, charging you for something that you're still going to do anyway. And so they didn't see the logic in that. But the market had already told them that that's what they wanted. And we ended up being about a year and a half behind. And we finally had to go forward and put that product into market. Uh, But we were late because of sort of a little bit of arrogance, I guess, on on the side of the founders to say, no, no, it doesn't make any sense. We're not going to do it that way. Yeah. Yeah. Listen to the
0: market like and take it with a grain of salt though
1: because sometimes the market could lie. <laughs> well, sometimes people don't know what they want. They can't yeah. articulate it.
2: Yeah. Yeah. That's true. That's true. And the, and and the real innovators are the ones who are able to tell the market what they want and show them why it's the better way. So it's 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 balancing it, right? I think um I think most founders think you know, whichever industry they're in, they're the next Steve Jobs of that industry. And But it takes a lot of learning. It takes a lot of time. And it takes a lot of market feedback to truly understand what type of product you're bringing there. And once you gain the trust of the market, because you're solving a problem that exists, and you've, you've used their pull, then you can start to innovate and talk to them about the solutions you're thinking about, because you've earned the trust and they're willing to, to hear you out on what you have to offer.
0: So let's take a, a change of pace here and talk about building your team and onboarding new reps. Now, you have the experience from more transactional sale uh, to very highly complicated sale. I wouldn't say transactional, but less complicated of a sales process to very complicated sales processes. What are you looking for in sales reps and low-level management uh, when you're hiring? Do you want to start? Yeah.
2: I read an article. I don't know. It was probably five or six years ago, and it was from um, from a senior hiring manager at Salesforce who had he had separated hiring characteristics into two buckets. They're essentially the teachables and the non teachables. The teachables being experience related, forecasting, sales process, sales methodology, uh, talk tracks, messaging, all that stuff. And then there's the non-teachables, it's, it's who somebody is at their core. So the things that are really hard to move, like for example, it's hard to teach somebody to be curious. If they're not a naturally curious person who is going to ask lots of thought-provoking questions because it would pain them to leave a conversation without knowing, and that's just who they are as a person, that's a hard thing to really uh, train somebody on. You can, it just takes a, a very heavy lift from the manager to do that. So I, I think it, it, specifically here at Drift, we have a pretty well-organized hiring process so we can dig into both sides of it because both sides matter. You want to be able to get to the who, so what they've actually done in their career from an experienced standpoint from from start to finish and then um, dig into the really the psychology of what motivates them as a salesperson or as a leader Uh, so we understand whether or not those intrinsic characteristics are going to line up with the specific role because there's a difference between somebody who enjoys hunting and customer acquisition and somebody who would prefer to be on the account management side where you're doing both service and trying to find other product fits or reasons to renew and show value of the product. Um, so we, so we, we've tried to build our process that way so that we can, we can tightly align the role, the responsibility, the cultural characteristics that we're looking for as a company, and then take the experience they've had in the past and make sure it lines up with both.
1: it also matters on stage, right? Like if you're early stage, I've always sort of leaned towards hiring a little bit more experienced rep, probably not your ideal rep two, three years from then, but you've got to take the variable of salesmanship out of the equation when you're starting a business because there's already too many variables that are outside of your control, product market fit, uh, competitors, all that other stuff that you can't have uh, most people hire junior salespeople just to get some people out there talking to someone. But you, I would hire five, six, seven years of experience, technologists, people who understand technology and can talk about it and articulate it well. Because if you don't do that, you're already hamstringing your business in terms of getting feedback and getting engagement with customers.
0: Yeah, I think it's really important. Don't don't be cheap on your first couple of hires, uh, especially for sales, because you'll burn the leads if you get unqualified people. You'll miss you'll miss the sub context of what the prospects are actually saying, you know, and that's so important to get that feedback to the
2: uh, product team. Yeah, agreed. It's a good point. It, it's um, the companies that make the leap into hyper growth mode. You know, there's the concept of, of scarcity and abundance, especially if you're in a transactional business where oftentimes your hiring is trying to catch up to your lead flow. Like If you're in a, a heavy marketing or product-driven business that's driving lots of leads in, you're trying to hire to that lead flow. And so you, if there's too much abundance, oftentimes it's salesperson's human nature is to cherry pick the good stuff. Look at the cover of the book, and if they don't like the way it looks, they kind of cast it aside. So you're not necessarily learning what the true capacity is of the business in terms of being able to convert against all of those leads. And then you get into places either very early stage or after you've gone through that initial curve of hypergrowth, growth where scarcity starts to creep in. And that leads to, generally leads to better conversion of the leads that you have because everything that comes in is treated with a different level of care uh, than it is in the past. So I, th- I think it's, you know, Armin's right, it does matter on stage, but it also, as the company grows and goes through its life cycle, there's different... Kind of uh, places where human psychology sets in, um, and scarcity and abundance is a place that I think you know. At LogMeIn, uh, at CarGurus, at Sophos, we saw like every business goes through this evolution where sometimes you have leads, sometimes you don't, and the way the salespeople approach their job changes as a result. And you can manage that and get control of that to some degree by segmenting. So
1: what we've done here is start to segment the sales motions from inbound and outbound. So we don't have people wondering, what do they got to do today to get to the number of the leads going to come in today or not? So, hey, you're outbound. You've got to generate and go kill and bring it back where we have an inbound team that's focused on just converting those at a very rapid pace for the leads that are coming in. Right.
0: Uh, Josh, you said that uh, something about your uh, hiring process that you guys have like a very good hiring process. Can you dive into a little bit about what that is and how that looks?
2: Yeah and it's something we've uh, we've taken great care to to build out here and it's a credit to our co-founder Elias Torres who has really owned building the engine so it's not just the sales hiring engine it's how we hire at drift and there's a couple of concepts that are important to it. One of them is speed and just ensuring that when we when we initiate a conversation with a candidate we're able to take the candidate through the steps as quickly as possible so that it's a uh, it's a continuous conversation as opposed to what happens oftentimes where you might have an initial conversation with a recruiter and then maybe there's a coffee or an informal interview a week or two later and then the person decides whether or not that person comes in and it can take it can be a 6 to 8 week process to get somebody hired we've tried to condense that our goal is 7 days um, reality is it's probably more like two to three weeks, but it's still faster than you'd find at most other organizations. Because if you run your process correctly, there's no need to sit on the fence. We, It's an objective decision process, as objective as, as can possibly be. So the way we do it, is we have what are called DRIs, so Directly Responsible Individuals. There are six in the company for each of the functions that we have here at Drift, and they're responsible for making the decision on whether or not somebody gets hired. They will typically do an informal at the front of the interview process, so they're actually filtering the people that our recruiting team are bringing into the company if it passes the informal, we'll put them through a formal meeting. On the sales side, that's going to include uh, one of our team members diving into the who. So it's what I mentioned earlier, the the front to back and what they've done in their career. We'll do a live role play, which includes giving feedback to the person and then role playing again to see how well uh, or how coachable they are, how well they can take the feedback they were given and then reenact it in the next role play. Uh, We will dive into the fit against our cultural principles. So for example, one of our principles is, uh, is a bias for action. Like, are they going to take it upon themselves to do things without instruction, without direction, because naturally they just want to dive in and be able to get things done? Uh, We'll interview against our cultural characteristics, and then I'll come in and we'll measure against the intrinsic characteristics I had mentioned earlier. So like who they are at their core, curiosity, drive, self-awareness, resiliency, emotional intelligence, et cetera. And then at the end of it, we'll come together. We have a, a strict principle that we follow here, which is the DRI is to seek feedback not consensus. So we're not it's it's not voting on who we're going to hire. It's the expectation that the, the DRI is collecting all of the feedback from the team, takes all of the learnings, and then is making the final decision on whether we're going to move to offer or if we need to take one more step to get additional feedback if there were things that came up that we weren't sure of and need to need to dive a little bit deeper. But we try to do we try to make that a really condensed process and get to a decision one way or the other as quickly as possible.
0: It's oh, really cool. What can you give some examples of um, like all these things that you're looking for and you're testing? How are you testing that though? Like, what are you actually implementing during the process?
2: Yeah, so I think I can talk on the intrinsic characteristics side. I think Armin can get into some of the who that he's looking for. But so, for example, for resiliency, I'll ask questions around. Tell me about the last time you missed your number in the month or the quarter or the year, depending on what type of sales role they're in. What did you do about it? How did you handle it? Uh, What did you change in your sales process? Trying to get into the answers I'm looking for, are they either gonna blame somebody else Or they're going to take it at like, I didn't get enough leads for marketing or our product was down for a couple of days. And so the customers just didn't want to use it. Or are they going to say, what I learned was the person who was signing off on the contract was going on vacation. I didn't ask them ahead of time, whether they're going to be able to get it done by the end of the month. So that deal slid over and then found out that the head of demand gen was actually let go. And the CMO didn't even know they were looking at drift. I own that process because I didn't make contact with the CMO. I didn't have a relationship there. And so I've learned going forward to make sure that I'm reaching out with a soft touch to meet the senior executives. I think you get where I'm going with it. Yeah. It's, a, it's We want to show that they're willing to learn from it, that they're self-aware enough to know it's something they control and they can get better at it versus blaming somebody else and just accusing the company of not doing enough to help them.
1: Yeah, the other thing we use is predictive index, which gives us a sense for what are the attributes and characteristics that they think other people think about themselves and what they think about themselves. And then that synthesizes a score that allows us to see where the sort of personality strengths and weaknesses are and and whether those match. Like everybody has them and just we're just trying to find the pattern that matches what we think success looks like here. Uh, and then the last part is the who, which Josh had mentioned, which is based on the book – who which was written probably Jesus it's got to be like 10 years ago now <laughs> yeah, <not> um, sure. <laughs> but what you're trying to do is ultimately what are those what are those moments in time during someone's life that That really are the anchors of their motivation. And oftentimes they actually don't know what they are, but through a couple of ways of questioning, you get them to realize that. And oftentimes in my interviews, people like, Jesus, I've never said this in an interview before. (laughs) Oh, is it okay to say, like, I'm like, listen, we're trying to get to know who you are so that we can help you and motivate you? And we just gotta, gotta get a sense for who you are and why you're here. The other thing I like to ask is, hey, listen, you're smart, you're capable. Why did you choose? technology sales. And I think that gets people too, because I think technology sales is a shiny thing that people gravitate towards and think that they can make um, money really quickly. And so I'm trying to dig into like, are they coming every, every day to be passionate about something that we're doing as a company or achieve something in their career that we can provide them? Or is it sort of very thinly veiled as, uh, I don't know, I can just, I heard you guys are growing really fast. I heard people are
2: making good money here and like, that's the only reason. Yeah, Yeah, I think Armin's really good at being able to get to the core of somebody's why, because when you're working for a company that's growing like ours is, that has the brand recognition like ours does, like we get a lot of people who think they wanna be part of a hyper growth company, but they ultimately, they just want the result at the end. They want to be part of- <laughs> they, want you the know, uh, <laughs> they want the stock options. They want the stock options. They want to be part of the championship team. They want to be part of that, what happens at the end, but don't necessarily want to be part of all the hard work that happens along the way to get it there. And so really being able to get to the core of somebody's why as to why they want that specific role at this place in time at our company, why do you want that? And if it aligns with what we're looking for, it, it works well.
1: Yeah, I think the secret that nobody talks about is companies that grow really, really fast are much, much harder. They're much more uncomfortable. Just as I said, my job gets sliced every year because we're dispersing that responsibility across a wider group of people. That's an uncomfortable place to be in when it's your first or second job because you don't know what that means. And you either have this faith and trust and focus on what you want and believe, or you're looking for the quick return and you immediately believe that because you didn't get it right away, it's not available to you and you make another decision and those people leave quickly.
0: I I couldn't agree with you guys more. I've never heard it really like uh, somebody actually articulated this clearly like you guys did, but I I could always look at, uh, I've seen so many people that you see their CVs and you see that they jump from one rocket ship to the next, but you always see that They were only there for a year, year and a half, and then they're gone because they're always just trying to jump on the bandwagon and and get that brand recognition to their name when they didn't actually accomplish anything. And they weren't actually there in the early days when when it was
2: actually on the rocket ship up. Yeah. And even you know, I joined here, I think we were around 200 employers or so when I joined. And there had been some really hard work that was done in the years prior. Those are hard times when you're, you know, you go from first year which is survival mode, let let's prove that we can actually sell something into the market and get some money back for it so we can pay the employees we have and stay alive and keep our runway long enough. And then you get into product market fit mode when you're like, okay, I think we have something here. Let's see how fast we can go. And then you you hope you earn the right to get to scale mode, which is where we're at now and and really trying to build this thing up over time. But from the earliest days, that's real hard. When you're taking investors' money and trying to spend it wisely, and take what is essentially a concept or an idea and turn it into a business, that's that's really hard stuff. So I have a lot of respect for what founders do early on and being willing to take the risk. I think as as DC, our CEO, will tell anybody, if you start a company, you're brave. If you start two companies you're, you're borderline. And if you start three, like he has, you're just certifiably insane. <laughs> yeah. You're crazy. Uh, cause <laughs> you, you have to, you have to have a different level of thinking, a different type of vision to, to want to do that to yourself. You have times. to have a screw loose. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah.
0: <laughs> All right. I, I wanted to ask one more question about the hiring process real quick. If you have one thing that you want to look for, what
2: the, what is the most important thing that you look for during an interview? The most important thing I look for, quite honestly, is resiliency or grit, however you want to say it. Mm-hmm. I think it's it's the one component that if I look across specifically the three companies, I think between Log Me In and Car Gurus and Drift it's it's the one common ingredient that you find in the people that are able to transition from one stage of the company to another stage of the company. They're willing to handle the unknown, the change management that goes along with that, where like one day you have a certain job and if you're an individual contributor, it might be receiving inbound leads. And then the next day you're outbound dialing into customers and and having to reach out to people you didn't. It's a different job. It's different yeah. than what you originally signed up for. So I think it's the grit, the resiliency, and the core of that is somebody who has a natural curiosity to get to the why why a company is changing, why we're doing things differently. And that's what allows somebody to be gritty, to be resilient, is, is asking those good questions. And once, once somebody understands why decisions are being made and why a company is doing things a certain way, they're able to transition with that organization to the next phase and, and help in the execution. So it's all about grit. You have to have a little sandpaper <laughs> uh, to go through a hypergrowth growth company successfully and transition to another stage where there's a whole new set of challenges, problems, uh, and things that need to be done. Absolutely. Armin, what's your one thing that you're looking
0: for?
1: Curiosity has always been my go-to. I can't implants curiosity and when and the reason it's important is back to what I said earlier where the weakness in the sales process is reps that take customers at their word or don't ask the tough questions they gloss over all of the really good stuff that causes prospects to want to talk to a salesperson. Nobody wants to talk to a salesperson, right? They they have put themselves through the pain of wanting to talk to a salesperson. Why? What's going on in that business? And what's caused that? What's the political motivation of the individual? Do they get credit for or are they acting out of fear right now because they're worried for their job or the mark? they're losing market share right now against the competition and they're looking for some help somewhere, right? Like I'm always trying to under, my mother always uh, told me, I asked why like a million times when (laughs) I was a kid. And, and it's just something that I've had appreciation for always wanting to know why, why, why. And if a sales rep has that built in them, they'll get caught up with happy years once in a while, but they'll have way more information and how to control the deal than reps that don't have it. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right, so I want to make a
0: transition and I know this might sound like a setting you guys up for a sales pitch, but I want to understand <laughs> what uh what drift not is, but what is your mission with the this whole conversational marketing? What is that and how can businesses implement that?
2: Yeah. Well, I'll start and then uh, Armin can riff off it. But I I think the, the best way to think about Drift is we're genuinely trying to make it easier for businesses to buy from businesses. If you look at the consumer landscape and what companies like Amazon or Netflix or Uber and Lyft have done to disrupt. Uh, existing business models and making it as easy as possible for the consumer to get from point A to point B or to get the product or the service that they're looking for immediately. You think about it wasn't that long ago that you had to get in your car and drive to a video store if you were looking to grab a movie on a Friday night. And if you walked in and the title was gone, guess what? You weren't watching that movie that night. You had to find something else. And so I think that's all happened in the B2C landscape over the last decade, decade and a half, but it hasn't transitioned to B2B. So like Drift's mission and conversational marketing as a space is to try to initiate and engage in a conversation with a potential buyer. And right now we're using chatbots to do that, but over time it will be uh, omni-channel and, and lots of different ways to interact between a business and a customer. We want to make it easy for that buyer to make a decision as to whether or not the product and the service that that other businesses is buying or uh, offering is the right fit for them and the quicker the engagement the earlier we can engage like we think about it as drift wants to serve at the layer closest to our customers potential customer so it's about really servicing that layer where the buyer comes into the website And they're kind of, you think about when you land on somebody's website and you're trying to figure out a little bit about what they do, who they are, what their product or service is, who they compete with, why they're different. Are there case studies and social proof that would suggest they're better than everything else that's out there? You're trying to get to these answers as quickly as you can. And so, what Drift is trying to accomplish is to get them to those answers as fast as we possibly can with the highest level of engagement so they know whether or not it's appropriate to take a next step.
1: Yeah, I think at the practical level, like I said, I started in sales and marketing when salespeople followed up with uh, snail mail that they sent to somebody, right? That was my job as a BDR when I started. And then I saw the revolution of putting assets online and being able to engage with visitors as they come came to your site. And I think over the last 15 years, we've so over-rotated towards automation that we forgot that you've got to develop a relationship and trust with somebody, rather than just how do we optimize this funnel to just get more dollars out? Of it, which is always true, but like there's a human on the other end that doesn't want to be over automated too. And so, where Drift comes in is, and the thing, the reason I joined Drift, here's the bottom line I saw the same playbook running at every business (laughs) in terms of hey, I'm going to put some information on my website. For you to get it, you're going to have to give up your anonymity. And once you do that, I'll send that to you, but then I'm going to barrage you with emails and phone calls because now I think you're ready to buy. And everybody's running that play. And the just as the snail mail era ended when I started my career, I think that this over automation and, and optimization of funnel engine is coming to a close in at least the way it's been designed over the last 10 years. And customers want to operate the way they do in the consumer space, where they want on-demand services and answers. And right now, B two B is not set up to do that. They're optimized for what's best for their marketing team and sales team, not what's best for the customer.
0: Very, uh, very interesting, and I couldn't agree with you more on the, the the way that we approach people now has, which has become the standard. And it's so true. Like nobody wants to be optimized. Nobody wants to be looked at as like just another dollar in the funnel. They want yeah, that when you're buying
1: something, do you want a process applied to you, right? Like as a buyer? Yeah. No, <laughs> I just you're want to talk team. to somebody and get an answer. Yeah. <laughs> Great.
0: All right. So I want to ask a couple. Uh, we're running out of time here, so I want to respect your guys' time as well, and also our listeners. So I have a couple rapid-fire questions for you guys, and uh, curious about what is your favorite uh, sales or leadership book.
2: Uh, I'm going to talk about one that I'm reading right now that was uh, given to me by a fellow sales leader down in New York who had mentioned it. It's called Multipliers. And it's all about the concept of leadership in a company and the companies that hire people who try to extract top level productivity out of their team by asking questions as opposed to kind of like directively pushing stuff down on top of them to do. So like being task oriented and forcing them to do things. But actually, like asking them questions so that you're challenging every individual in your organization and getting the most productivity out of them is a good one. I'm still in the middle of it, but it's the freshest one at the top of my mind. Um, we read a lot of books at Drift. It's part of our culture. If you listen to, to Seeking Wisdom between Dave Gerhardt and David Cancel, you'll know they talk about books a lot, but it's a core part of our culture. But this, this one is top of mind for me, multipliers. Right. Yeah. For me, the
1: gold standard is impossible to inevitable, which is the second book from Aaron Ross and Jason Lemkin. First being um, predictable revenue. Impossible to inevitable is the journey that tech companies take from from really early days to hyper growth, and all like he captures all of the mistakes and the ways to optimize your team and what to look out for pitfalls. He's just. A, they both have just done done such a great job to, to capture it all in a 250-page book. It's amazing. I still go back to it and remind myself of mistakes that I'm making right now that I knew, forgot, and read it and remind myself all the time.
2: Interesting. Yeah, I would, for early stage founders, Adam, I would, I would add two more that I know we've read here too, which is uh, The Hard Thing About Hard Things by Ben Horowitz, which is a classic, and Blitzscaling by Reed Hoffman. For any founder who's been able to, to tip over into that next stage of growth, having that perspective from, from someone like Reed is, is pretty important. Excellent.
0: Besides your own, what's your favorite sales tool that you use? Oh,
1: boy. Uh, probably Gong. Gong.io, those guys do a great job. The thing that's interesting about their product is you're able, no sales manager can be on every sales call or see every coachable moment. And in pipeline reviews, you can only cover what the either the rep put notes in Salesforce or the manager has observed in some way or another for those coachable moments. Gong helps you scale and increase coachable moments for your sales team. Uh, with the voice recognition, it allows you to find the moments in time and what part of the sales process potentially the the rep is in and identify where they did a good job and where they still have a gap.
0: Excellent.
2: Yeah, I, I would say, and this is less of a specific tool and more of a, a channel, but video as a salesperson is a very powerful medium and something that um, I think prior to coming to Drift, I hadn't seen used as extensively as the team was using it here. And the way we use video between uh, small, kind of short, quick GIFs to show a customer what Drift could look like on their website, to actually sending a 30 to 45 to 60 second video, just highlighting what happened in the last call they were on and the demo they had. So it's like, you know, just the reminder to reaching out and saying hi and introducing yourself, it just it really humanizes the sales process. Can't hide behind it. Like your tone is clear, your body language is clear. And I think video does a lot to unveil who a person is on, on either side of the equation between buyer and seller. Hugely powerful channel. Yeah, we,
1: uh, we could spend a half an hour on how we use video. We would not have been able to grow Drift as fast as we did over the last two years without using video in our sales process. Great. Great. All right. So I uh, really appreciate you guys coming on today.
0: Really, I think you, you shared a lot of good insight and uh, going to help the listeners a lot. How can people reach out to, to either one of you and, and learn more about Drift? Directly, as
2: directly as possible. My, uh, <laughs> my email here is uh, joshdrift.com. We're on LinkedIn all the time. It's, it's a place that uh, that Drift is very comfortable with. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And I'm Armin at drift.com. And you can check me out on LinkedIn as well. So happy to connect with anybody or answer questions offline, whatever you like. Excellent. Uh, last question before I let you guys go
0: uh what one piece of advice do you have for all the early stage uh, startups out there
2: <laughs> one piece one piece i I've, um so founders tend to have a learners or growth mindset anyway i think it's the natural curiosity that that causes them to build and create Uh, solutions that don't exist today. But it's the speed at which you can learn is going to determine I think your ability to get to the other side of that initial process of determining whether or not you have something that that is true product market fit. So so speed to learning and then taking those learnings and being able to apply either from a product marketing or sales messaging standpoint uh, often is what separates the the long-term survivors from from ones that end up having to go do something else?
1: Uh, for me, I learned how to read in school,
2: but I, I, but I wasn't an avid reader.
1: DC, our founder, has really pushed on us to read lots of books. And the reason is most of the answers to problems that you experience have already been solved and or articulated by some masterful people. Uh, yet we don't. We have these libraries available to us, and we don't access them. And I was arrogant. And hey, I've been here twenty years. I know what I'm doing. And I learn stuff every day now and am humbled by all the work that others do and put down a paper for us to be able to learn from them. Don't close yourself off to thinking you have all the answers. And even if you don't like somebody, you might still be able to learn from them. So you might have heard, oh, that guy's a jerk or whatever. Don't read that book. Yeah, whatever. There's still nuggets in there that you can learn from. Don't close yourself off to those things.
0: Absolutely, Guys, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you for having us, Adam. Appreciate it. Yeah, thanks a lot. It was great. Thanks for listening to Startup Sales with Adam Springer. Subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. Contact Adam about speaking engagements or consulting services at adam at startupsales.io.